0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm just absolutely honored and uh, delighted today to uh, introduce our esteemed colleague, Professor John Bowers. Uh, as you know, the Faculty Research Lectureship, as uh, Kung Kung just mentioned, is the highest campus honor and also a peer record. Honor. Uh, this is the 58th year of the faculty research lecture series. Uh, the award says the award recognizes extraordinary scholarship distinction as well as contributions to our campus and our community. Uh, John received his master's and a PhD degrees from uh, Stanford University. He worked at AT&T Bell Labs and at Honeywell before joining UC Santa Barbara in 1987. He, uh, as Kun Kun just said, he's a professor of electrical and computer engineering and materials, as well as director of Institute of Energy Efficiency. Uh, but I might add that he is also the holder of the chair of uh, F- Fred Kavli, endowed the chair in nanotechnology. He's also a member of our technology management program. Uh, He's one of the foremost authorities in the area of optoelectronics and photonics. Uh, Photonics has helped to to transform our lives by enabling the internet through high capacity fiber optic transmission. Professor Bauer's research includes silicon as a photonic platform. This research will impact the future of telecommunications and silicon electronics. He has supervised 50 PhD students, has published a score of book chapters, over 50, uh, 500 journal papers, over 800 uh, conference papers. He has only 200 to go for 1,000 and has received 53 patents. Professor Bauer is a member of the National Academy of Engineering, uh, fellow of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, we call IEEE. He's a fellow of the Optics uh, Optical Society, OSA and a fellow and fellow uh, uh, of the American Physical Society, APS. So we go by acronym here because I needed to introduce his awards. His research has been recognized with the numerous prestigious honors, including OSA IEEE Tyndall Award. Uh, the OSA uh, Holonek, Nick Holoniak Award a Prize, the IEEE uh, William Stryfer Award, as well as the South Coast Business and Technology Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Professor Bowers and his colleagues received the ACE Award for the most promising technology for development of the hybrid silicon laser. John is a co-founder of the technolo- technological companies, uh, Terabit Technology, Orion, uh, Arias Photonics, and Collient Networks. He is also founder of the Santa Barbara-based nonprofit Unite to Light, an organization that works to provide affordable, clean, and a safe solar powered LED light to communities in developing countries. He's described by one of his colleagues as a great teacher, an outstanding public lecturer, we'll find out pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) An accomplished uh, entrepreneur, an effective uh, collaborator, and inspirational worker for the public good. He's widely knowledgeable, being an expert in the fields of electronic devices, device physics, and materials. So um, I uh, have the honor now please join me in asking you to join me in give uh, John our warmest welcome.
1: Well, thank you very much. That was a very kind introduction. Um, I definitely can't live up to the uh, introduction, but I'll do my best. Um, So I certainly want to thank the faculty uh, for this award and and the opportunity to speak today. And I want to thank the chancellor for the opportunity to direct the Institute for Energy Efficiency and and thank some of the people who got it all started, which was uh, Dan Burnham and George Holbrook and Jeff Henley uh, and others. So um, thank you. Today, I want to talk about the future photonics, and specifically silicon photonics. Um, it isn't really about silicon, though. Silicon is, is like the world's worst light emitter, right? Um, it truly really is. So when, when Suji Nakamura makes a, a blue LED, he combines, you know, take an electron and a hole, they recombine and give out light. And it's very efficient, and we can use it for solid-state lighting and, and laser pointers and, and all kinds of things like this. But silicon, for it to emit light, basically has to break the law of conservation of momentum. The electrons and holes in silicon are at different points in k space. They have electrons have momentum, and the only way it can recombine and give out light is to give out a phonon at the same time. And phonon is heat. And so silicon is literally a million times worse than gallium nitride for light emission. So we work on putting three fives in silicon, and what silicon photonics is really all about is is using silicon in the CMOS capability. So I have an example here. Um, photonics today is based on wafers like this. This is a 3-inch uh, wafer of gallium arsenide, and uh, it's pretty standard for the industry today. But what we're trying to do is put all our photonics on wafers like this. So that's a 12-inch silicon wafer, and newer fabs are going 8-inch, bigger than this. But fundamentally, what today's talk about is not about silicon, but about making photonics on these kinds, you know, on, on a wafer like this in a CMOS facility. So um, that's half of it. That's the left hand side of this. The right hand side is the ability to use automatic wafer processors. And, uh, and if you've ever seen these things work, they're all roboticized, they move you know, a second per wafer going in and out. And they're highly efficient, and, and it works very well. So that, that's what silicon photonics is about, is making photonics in these kinds of facilities and those kinds of wafers. But what's shown here is sort of where silicon is today. Five, 10 million transistors on a wafer. That's where we want to get to with photonics, is much higher levels of integration than we are today. And similarly, use much better lithography that's available in these sorts of facilities. So that's the goal of the silicon photonics. Today, I want to talk about what's the future for for it, and I'll start with what's the problem. What is what is the driver, the economic driver for this technology uh, that we're doing? So the driver is basically starting with big data. Right? We all use big data. We store our photos on on the web, and, and we upload videos, and, and we have our lifeline uh, on Facebook, and and. Uh, There's now two billion people doing that, and and we're all doing a billion searches a day. So that's that's the driver. And uh, the big driver of late, of course, has been uh, smartphones. If you look at the amount of smartphone data, uh, mobile data, uh, we're here. And uh, basically, this is just three years. So in three years, we'll have something like six times the amount of data we need to upload. So that means six times the cell phone antenna capability, six times the backbone, and probably six times the data center (laughs) capability. So that's what we want to look at today is, how do we make all these things far more efficient such that we don't take six times the power to do so? This is just mobile traffic. It's on a linear scale, so you you see this dramatic rise. Typically, we plot it on a log scale. So this is factors of 10 here. Um, So now this is terabytes per year versus year, and a couple of projections. But basically, the point being that from where we are today or in a decade to 2020, we're going to have the expectation of something like 100 times the data we need to process and handle. And that's the problem i to address. We don't take 10, 100 times the, the power to do so. This is the growth of power, even assuming optimistic projections for more efficient uh, processing. And there's the different components here of optical transport and um, access networks and so forth. Um, and the red one here is what happens inside the data center. But again, if you look from 2010 to 2017, that's, that's two, and three, two and a half, three times as big. So that's our goal, is how do we make all this much, much more efficient than it is today? This is a plot of how much carriers spend on Servers, so you know Google, Amazon, everybody else for their servers, and it's you know kind of took a dip around 2001, but it's more or less constant. What isn't constant is how much people spend on power and cooling. So power to drive these data centers and power to the the cost to extract it, and that's what's in yellow. And you can see it's tripling or quadrupling just over this this time period here. So that's the motivation, the economic motivation to be far more efficient from. a green point of view. If we look today at CO2 emissions, data centers are not particularly large. They're a fraction of what the airline industry puts out, and they're a fraction of what a medium-sized country does. The problem, though, is the expectation is that in 2020, even with expected improvements, it's not going to be small. It's going to be something like four times bigger than uh, the airline industry, right? And and uh, bigger than than typical countries. So. That's the impact on our environment is, is all of the, the, the uh, CO2 emissions to power these data centers. So one solution, of course, is the equivalent of wearing a sweater at home instead of turning up the heat so we could stop doing searches or uploading videos. But I don't think that's likely to happen. So let's talk about data centers. So this is a, a classic Google data center, which they call a warehouse-scale computer. And indeed, this is all full of servers and, and such. What's interesting is that along the side here, these are all the, the coolers, right? The chillers, the water, uh, water-cooled structures. Um, there's a little more a better picture of that here. You can see this is the uh, backup water supply, basically, for it. And these are the chillers that now are expelling all the heat that is generated inside this data center. Um, one thing if you look this this picture' come from the Google website and, and they have a really did a really nice job. but notice how the pictures are getting really nice they 're looking you know it 's sort of at sunset you know and, and uh, it, look, it looks very nice, but you can see these plumes of it 's just water vapor it's it 's not smoke but uh, you 'll see that in a couple other examples where uh, we 'll we'll get nice looking pictures that uh, make it look better. If you go inside the data center, then you have all these pipes, right? So I'll show you pictures of servers in a second. But these blue pipes are all cooling water. That's cooling water to cool the servers and the switches and the routers and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, Erz Hutzel from uh, Google was here. and He was originally a computer science faculty member uh, here long ago, and then went to, to become director of research at Google. And he gave a lecture, in, and I think it was in this room. And they're all mostly computer science students, professors, and I was very amused because they were very bored by the first half of his talk. And uh, Rod was, was directing this. And the first 30 minutes had nothing to do with computer science. It wasn't even, ever mentioned. The whole first half was about cooling and, and, and things like concrete. He says, I know more about concrete than I ever thought I would know. And, uh, so, but, but then he went to computer science. It was okay. <laughs> so... So then uh, here is, is indeed lots of racks, all these servers, all having processors on it, storage, uh, and so forth, and taking you know, on the order of 100 megawatts of power for a large new one. And all these racks are interconnected with fibers. So I'll talk about how the optics is going to continue penetrating from where it is today. This is again a little blow up of what you know a bunch of these racks look like, and indeed there's Lots of, lots of these uh, trays all full of processors and storage. And, and uh, it's, it's a lot of processing capability to put a million you know, processors in one of these facilities. So today, all the wiring within that rack is electrical, just like the Cat5 sort of cable uh, you might have in your home. And that's the So That's the next boundary point we'll talk about later, is when, when and how that becomes optical and, and why it needs to happen. Hopefully not like this. That's not the way we'd like to see it happen. That's a little not too well planned, probably. So there's a lot of interesting things that go on these days. Um, this shows basically a, a global optical network. Um, so there's lots of sites within the United States. Multiple, most you know, major servers like Google have you know, four, five, six data centers that are all interconnected with fiber. And then they're all connected to other parts of the world. So in particular, Google has now purchased a submarine cable with literally about a terabit per second of capacity to connect their data servers here with their data ser- servers over here. And that's been a very interesting phenomenon that never used to be true. right? It used to be that we couldn't even afford a connection from here to the Engineering Research Center across, across the way on Hollister, because it would be you know, a thousand dollars a month. That I remember we used to cost for just 100 megabits of data, but now they're going to own an entire cable because rather than build more data servers here, they'll use the ones back here when they're not being used. And uh, so when it's nighttime there, they'll use their those, and also because electricity is cheaper at night there, right? You know, load, electrical companies like to do load balancing. So while we're crunching away here, they'll send the data over here, have it processed, and send it back. That's because it doesn't take much energy to transmit bits anymore. It takes much more energy to process process bits than to transmit them, and same with cost. So this general thought is follow the sun's strategy, basically, which is load balancing and trying to use facilities when electricity is the cheapest. That's the goal. That was just one particular network. This is sort of all the different fiber optic cables. And I want to start with that as an example, just because it's a, it's a well-defined metric. So what I want to do is look at what does it take to take energy from here over to Europe, basically? It's a well-defined thing. And then we'll, we'll look further. What do we do inside a data center? But this has gone on for a while. And, and uh, I want to go through a bit of history uh, to tell you about a series of inventions. So here's the answer. Um, this is what it's taken to send data across the country n- normalized per 1,000 kilometers, it's, you know, few four, three f- 5,000 kilometers across the ocean, and how it's gone over time. So what, what I want to do is talk about how we've gotten to where we are today. Um, basically, a reduction of about a factor of 100 million. So let's go back and go through the history. And at the end of that, then, we'll talk about where do we go from here. So it began with, I would say, Morse. There's lots of people who could claim to invent uh, the telegraph. But uh, certainly, William Morse and Morse code deserves to be up there. And uh, basically, he allowed us to convert letters to uh, bits, right, you know, dots and dashes. And his first message is, what has God wrought? Um, That was the first step. The next step was to build using a telegraph capability a cable across the Atlantic Ocean. And so that was originally Gisborne tried. And then he got together the businessman field. And they attempted to to lay a cable across shorter ones first, uh, then across the ocean. And multiple versions of this failed um, for a variety of reasons. Um, But they eventually succeeded. One key element was kind of the person that often some people quote as sort of the first person to do big data, which is kind of interesting. The problem is, how do you know if you're a sailing ship to get across the ocean in kind of a straight line, right? You don't want to really be carried by the current and end up, you know, there's obviously sextants in navigation. But uh, um, a long time ago, Matt Morey was head of the Department of Charts and Instruments in the US government, and he collected all the logs and made very accurate charts and studied currents and, and winds and everything else. And he required that every ship captain give him a copy of their log if they wanted a copy of his charts. And so in this case, um, Gisborne and Field uh, gave them the information they had. And they used his charts to figure out how to get a straight line across the Atlantic Ocean. And it's said that Maury had collected a million bits of data. Uh, And so it's sort of the first case of of, uh, big data, right? Not really just taking anyone's ship's log and put it together to get an accurate perception of what the ocean currents are are doing. So um, they tried several times. They failed. Um, The two ships are the USS Niagara and the Agamenos. Uh, And they met in the ocean finally August 26, 1939. And uh, they were successful. and uh, on August 16th, uh, uh, Jim Buchanan sent a telegram to Queen Victoria. Of course, you remember President Buchanan, right? This is president before Lincoln, right? We're not even at the Civil War yet, okay? So it's kind of amazing to me that that they were doing this. Um, so I want to read you. I, I read you what, what Morse sent first. And uh, so uh, what he said was... Um, It is a triumph more glorious, because far more useful to mankind than was ever won by a conqueror in the field of battle. Yet the Atlantic telegraph, under the blessing of heaven, proved to be a bond of perpetual peace and friendship under the kindred nations, and an instrument destined by the divine providence to diffuse religion, civilization, liberty, and law throughout the world. That's very noble, and we're trying to do that today. What's kind of interesting is it took 17 hours to transmit that message. (laughs) The data rate was kind of slow back then, okay? And the basic problem was they didn't have amplifiers yet, so you had to charge up one end of that cable and then discharge it, right? That was the the telegraph bit. And then you had to get that signal across the ocean. So they charged it up to on the order of 1,000 volts. And then they discharged this thing, and, and so it... It, it was kind of slow, um, fractions of bits per second. Um, what's interesting about this was the obviously was a need to make it faster. And within three months, they had ramped the voltage up to 2,000 volts, and they destroyed the cable. So <laughs> this heroic effort across the ocean only lasted for three months. Um, it's kind of sad. Um, OK, then there were other advances. Uh, Marconi was developing a, a wireless version of a telegraph, right, which we'll call radio, um, and he demonstrated wireless transmission across the Atlantic. Um, it's interesting that the Titanic sank shortly thereafter, 10 years later. And uh, they sent a you know, distress message by radio, which was received on shore. Um, Marconi was supposed to be on that ship. He had, he had tickets on that ship, the Titanic that sank. But he left three days earlier on the Lusitania, which was fortunate for, for us, I suppose, um, as well as him. Um, so we've gone from here, the first transatlantic cable, to now Marconi. OK, that's a lot less efficient, right? We're kind of going backwards there. Um, you know, These wireless techniques radiate over a large area. They're not confined down a cable. So uh, we've kind of taken a step backwards there. But then they made a number of advances and, and got back to the same sort of level. And uh, meanwhile, the submarine cable telegraphs really didn't progress much. So this is now 60, 80 years later, and not a lot has happened yet. Um, so there were advances necessary. One was certainly the telephone. It, uh, Graham Bell, of course, uh, with his famous words, "Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you." That was that was huge. Um, multiplexing was huge, right? If we didn't have multiplexing. Life today would be disastrous, right? So New York City uh, looked at all these wires because every telephone had a wire connected with it, right? That's pretty inefficient use of space. And fortunately, uh, George Squire, in 1910, invented time multiplexing. So basically, we will interleave everyone's telephone conversations so we can put 10 or 100 or 1,000 conversations down one wire. And we don't need to fill up the whole sky full of wires. But you can still see these arrays of wires. There recently, I don't know if it's still there, going down the uh, 101 toward towards Lompoc. You could could see arrays of about a hundred of these, at least a few years ago. Another key invention was coaxial cable. So here's an example: a bunch of these coaxial cables around here, and uh, this cable has 22 cable coaxial cables, and it can carry 90,000 phone calls. So wow, that that's a huge advance. So you put telephone coax cable together. And that resulted in the first transatlantic telephone cable now, not telegraph cable, telephone cable. It's called TAT-1, installed in 1956. This is a picture of the ship that was laying this cable um, and uh, bringing it ashore. And so now we're here. So now we've gained, we're finally making some progress. A factor of of 1,000 in the amount of energy it takes to transmit across the ocean. So that's good. there were several other cables applied, TAT2 and TAT3. And now we're getting up to 138 telephone channels uh, at one time. The next big advance was the invention of the transistor. Um, that cable, it's kind of amazing to me, You know, 1960, I, those who are my age and older, you remember having televisions with uh, tubes in them. They weren't very reliable. I can't imagine laying something across the ocean with tube-based amplifiers that, that would last any length of time. But they must have had awfully reliable tubes. Um, after this point, though, they had transistors, and things were amplified by, by transistors. And so uh, that, of course, they received a Nobel Prize in 1956. And you could build amplifiers. This is their point-contact uh, transistor. Um, so that, that was huge. Now you don't need to charge up so much. You could amplify it to keep a good signal-to-noise ratio across the ocean. So that gave us uh, TAT 4567. 4,000 channels now, another factor of 100 improvement uh, in energy efficiency. And then uh, we're at this stage. We still see these microwave transmission up on mountaintops and things like this. We had an interna- a national network of, of uh, microwave antennas. Uh, and the plan at that point was to uh, run microwave cable across the country. And this is really uh, an amazing tour de force. These were going to be uh, uh, 6 centimeter diameter cables, uh, circular cables, and uh, running at frequencies of 40 to 120 gigahertz, very high frequencies. And the design was to carry 230,000 voice channels. That's huge. That's, that's, that, that was huge. That was the plan as of 1970. That was the Bell AT&T had lots of very detailed plans. And all the research was on traveling wave tubes to amplify these 40, 60, 80 gigahertz signals. Um, but that never happened. So this happened. We still have some of those left. Um, but the microwave cable uh, worldwide network never, never happened. What happened was uh, John Tyndall, a long time ago, demonstrated that you can confine light inside with an index change, in this case a beam of water. And uh, Chancellor Yang mentioned the Tyndall Prize. That's why OSA has the Tyndall Prize. And then in 1966, Charles Cow was studying optical losses in glass and uh, how to reduce them. Again, it was a material science problem. How do you make much more clear glass than, than existed at the time? And uh, set the goal of 20 dB per kilometer as, as what could be achieved and needed to be achieved. And he received the Nobel Prize in, in 2010 for that. Uh, a few years later, 1970. Uh, Robert Maurer, Donald Keck, and Peter Schultz at Corning actually did purify silica and got the loss below this criteria, below 16 dB per kilometer. So now it really started to make sense that maybe we can send uh, light down a fiber and, and do build an international communication system with that. We needed one other element. You need the, lo- the, the fiber. But you also, well, OK, here's, here's, sorry, here's, here's the numbers for fiber. The loss is low. This is today's number, 0.2 dB per kilometer. And this is loss versus wavelength. So out here, it's very low, 0.2 dB per kilometer. And this width is very wide, um, something like 30,000 gigahertz. In fact, at the end here, I'll talk about some transmission measurements where people send 30, uh, 300 terabits down a single optical fiber. So we're not talking about a few telephone conversations. Now we're talking about millions in, of telephone conversations simultaneously. Um, so loss is very low, capacity is very large. That, that's, that was the motivation. And that's what Cow and, and Corning recognized back then. But the second thing you needed was a light source. And so uh, 1962 was the first demonstration of the semiconductor laser. Uh, Robert Hall, Marshall Nathan, MIT Lincoln Labs. Uh, and that was good. Um, but fortunately, Herb Cromer in 1962 was also thinking about the laser problem. And invented the double structure laser. The reason this is important is, is, if you had to make lasers like this, it would never never happen, right? It was far too much power. We would have not gained anything in terms of energy efficiency. But the double heterostructure invention saved us a factor of 400 right up at the start uh, in terms of energy efficiency of lasers. Now that. Maybe it doesn't seem so significant on this curve, except here's where we are today. So that was a factor of 400. We may become another factor of 20 in the subsequent 30 years since then. So that was a huge advance right from the very, very, very beginning. So, so thank you, Herb, wherever you are. Um. <laughs> so taking glass fiber, cemented uh, lasers. 1977 was the first optical fiber installation. It was in Chicago. And uh, all of 672 voice channels, so not, not that large yet. Um, but it was the beginning. And uh, again, this is about, in the United States, 1970, we largely stopped most of the microwave cable research and went switched over to, to fiber, at least at AT&T. Other parts of the world continued longer under that uh, other approach. So this is the last uh, electrical cable under the ocean. And then here's the first optical cable. So it's more efficient. But mainly, you've now got 10 times as many channels going down it. And uh, there are other versions, TAT9, TAT10, TAT11. So now you get up to a few gigabits per second. So that's, that's pretty significant. And becoming more, more efficient along the way. We need a few more inventions to get to where the world is today. The first is the urban built fiber amplifier, which was really pioneered at the University of Southampton uh, by Payne's group. And this is late 80s. And uh, basically, you can take signals in, light in, and amplify it, just like an electrical amplifier. It's sort of obvious that optics would need that. Um, That led very quickly. This was sort of 1988. Within four or five years, people were installing Sun of the ocean. And that was the TAT-9, TAT-12 cables operating at at 5 gigabit per second. So now you're at, wow, 300,000 voice channels. Now we're making some serious progress here. So that was an important invention. But it needed one other aspect, which was wavelength division multiplexing. Wavelength division multiplexing is simply sending multiple colors of light down the optical fiber at one time. So you have the same fiber, but now you can 32 colors of light. You get 32 times the capacity. And if it's all going through that same amplifier, it's 32 times more efficient. That's a huge win. And uh, it actually was demonstrated on the very first system. They designed the first system uh, to run at 780 or 825 nanometer wavelength. And then they added another wavelength band at, at the 1.3 micron region. So it actually was demonstrated much before, but it really wasn't used until the optical amplifier was around. And uh, so that was until about 1992. Um, so now this is two schemes. This is coarse division multiplexing, so widely spaced colors of light traveling down the fiber, which is commonly what, likely what will happen early in a data center in particular. And then this is called dense WDIM, dense wavelength division multiplexing. So now these wavelengths are very close together, say 100 gigahertz apart, point, point 0.8 nanometer or less, and uh, that's what to get very very high capacity down an optical fiber one needs to do. So now you get down to these dots down here. So now we're making really pretty significant progress. We're uh, we're down to uh, you know 10 to the ninth times less energy per bit to send light down to send energy, to signals down a fiber. Note also that the data rates are going up very, very fast. This is just a few years between, you know, one gigabit, ten gigabit. Um, maybe I have those split. Oh, yeah, ten gigabit. Now 1.9 terabits per second, and then the latest one down here is 10 terabits per second. So that's that's amazing progress in just a few years. In fact, this is part of what caused the whole collapse of the telecom industry around 2001, because all of a sudden, you know, this cable is carrying you know, ten times more than it had ever been installed into the ocean, and uh, it really didn't cost any more than it did before. So the costs are dropping very, very fast, and it's challenging to make money. And certainly for anyone who owned those previous systems, they're very quickly were, th- were were taken down because it wasn't worth running them. So, just to summarize what we went through, there've been a bunch of inventions: the telegraph, telephone. Multiplexing signals together, time division multiplexing. And we'll talk about wavelength division multiplexing, space division multiplexing. Coaxial cables, transistors, optical fiber, uh, the double head structure semiconductor laser, EDFAs, WDM. And that gets us here. So that's, that's a factor of 100 million over a course of, of 150 years. So. What I want to do now is look to the future, but first just note a few what, what went on at the same time. So that was how much more energy efficient it was. This is how much capacity goes down to fiber. And so we started back here at 50 megabits per second back in the late 70s. And uh, here these systems are getting ever faster. Um, so now have, you have know, a few gigabit per second. Uh, and Then with, again, WDM multiple colors, quickly up to to eight channels at, at a few gigabits. So uh, 80 gigabit per second, terabit per second. And then now transmitting both polarizations of light. That gives you another factor of two. Phase diversity, coherent systems, so now having, just like your cell phone does, uh, multiple bits per symbol traveling down it. And then finally, space division multiplexing. Having that same fiber, but having multiple cores now, rather than just one core in that fiber. And that's pretty huge. We're now up at 305 terabits per second, is the latest demonstration. So again, over the course of, of uh, 32 years, we've increased the capacity by a factor of 6 million. And that's, that's pretty phenomenal. Um, OK, so we've been talking about long haul um, and talked about this big increase in capacity um, and big increase and decrease in energy. What about switching that data, right? So when you send it from here down to Los Angeles, you need to switch it. And uh, routers and electrical switches take a lot of energy. So here's a typical electrical rack by companies like Cisco and others. Typically, 10 kilowatts per rack and is what you need to send to switch something like you know, two terabits of, of data. So that's one problem, and now you, you've put a lot of those inside a data center, and that, that's a lot of the, the consequent power. The other problem is, is power density. And so what's plotted here is that density in watts per square centimeter and, uh, versus time. So These are pro- ever more advanced processors, and this is stopping a while back, um, but they're getting up to levels that are well past hot plates and up towards nuclear reactors. And so that's the problem that modern chips have. We all know that, right? Our laptop gets hot sitting in our lap, and there's a fan sitting on that chip. Um, a lot of that energy, 40% of energy, is getting the signals off it, getting electrical signals off that chip uh, down to your memory or, 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 or elsewhere. And So that's where optics can play a role. Optics can transmit bits basically for the same energy, whether it goes you know, a micron or, or a kilometer, tens of kilometers. Whereas electronics wires, typically the longer the wire, the higher the capacitance, the more energy it takes to 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 drive that. So one solution is is what's done in town. Greg Kost back here is is uh, from Calient, and um, they make these 3D MEM switches. And so um, these are switch arrays right here. Here's an example. They move in two dimensions, and uh, light comes in on one side, an optical fiber. It goes off one of these. These switch these mirrors goes to another mirror and then back into another fiber. Um, this is really low power. So we are talking about you know 10 kilowatts for a two terabit switch. These are running at something like a microwatt per channel, right? 10 nanoamps, 100 volts on that order. Um, very energy efficient. This is silicon integration, silicon photonics, right? It's, these are all wafers of silicon. These are all made with wafers of silicon. Uh, here's an example. This is a six-inch wafer has eight die on it, um, but uh, it's possible because of the really incredible processing capability of silicon, and uh, that's the impact it's had. This is a plot of how much energy it takes to switch, and so here's different like core routers, um, Ethernet switches, things like this, and this is where optical MEMS switch sit. It's about 10,000 times more efficient than than. The electrical router way of way of switching, so that 's the big advance uh, that, that MEMS has so within a data center um, traditionally, and this now fits into the rest of, uh, of the talk, you have racks of servers that 's like I showed at the beginning, so you know thousands of servers inside of here, typically connected with electrical cable up to a top rack switch, and then from that top rack switch they 're interconnected with other switches and to the outside world with optical fibers. So that's good. That's the optical fiber we've been talking about. But this is the change now. This is where the world will change. Um, and we'll talk about how you get optics down inside this, this rack. But the first step is to now take some of that data and switch it optically using the switch like that one I just showed you. And so this is a Google paper. And they show, yeah, we'll, we'll keep mostly electrical switches. And there's a few optical switches here. And if you look at one of Greg Koss's slides, which I stole, um, he has the same kind of thing, except he's got just a couple electrical routers here and more optical switches here. So OK, I, I, that, that's OK. Um, here's another version of their slides. So now actually, here's all these racks of servers. And these are all the top of rack switches. And now the whole data center is connected across this plane with one big optical MEMS-based switch. So uh, with a few routers up here to talk to the rest of the world. So. That's certainly uh, Greg's vision of where the world will be going. Okay, so we talked about long haul, you know, across the ocean, In metro networks, access networks. Those are all optical today. And we talked about the fact that okay, between racks, like we just showed, those that's optical today. But that's about as far as it goes today. Most of the stuff within a rack is electrical. Certainly, chip to chip is electrical. And what we've been focused on at UCSB is, how do we change that? How do we move that boundary over and get to the point where we can communicate between chips optically rather than electrically? And eventually, and that'll be the very end of the talk, communicating on the chip all optically as well. And so the reason it doesn't happen today is that interconnects today, there isn't much integration. It's not like electronics. There's typically two devices integrated. There's There's a laser and a modulator. Um, maybe a, an amplifier and detector. So not much integration. The cost is pretty high. These interfaces often cost $1,000 each. The size is large. The power is pretty large, typically a watt per gigabit. And so a typical WDM network looks like this. Each one of these cards might have you know, one wavelength or a few wavelengths on it. And a big, high-capacity system, like we've been talking about, maybe takes a rack or two of equipment. That's the problem. You're not going to put that on your laptop or in a data center or whatever. So you need to integrate. And uh, this is one of Infinera's slides. And so rather than have an individual laser, a wavelength locker, a modulator detector, the idea is now integrate all those for one wavelength, and then all the other wavelengths all integrated together on one chip. And so that looks something like what's shown here. Uh, his name's kind of cut off, but uh, Nagarajan, who was my first graduate student, uh, led the d- chip design group at, at Infinera. And this is the same version for receivers. Um, and uh, that's the value of integration. So now, rather than having lots of cards, very expensive, very big, you now get it on a chip. So that's using dephosphide. Why silicon photonics? Well, I started with that. Large wafers, good process control. But also then, you know, seamless integration with electronics. So you know, planes of, of electronics bonded to planes of photonic wafers that are all on silicon. So 3D stacking sorts of approaches is, is where the world's going. This is IBM's cartoon, and they have other versions of the same thing. Larger wafers are cheaper. Um, not having dedicated facilities using VLSI facilities is cheaper. And taking advantage of the incredible process control of, of silicon. The final issue here is really important, which is there's eventually a huge volume driver here. right? At the point where ICs need optics to communicate on and off that chip, then you know, everything becomes becomes optical from a, there's a huge volume. So so now the numbers become very large. So what we're trying to do, basically, is combine what has been a separate field, laser technology, with a silicon technology and put it together. And the result is really pretty close to this. This is where any phosphide tends to be today. Fairly starred small wafers, fairly poor lithography and basically do all the processing on silicon wafers. Um, Large wafers, very good process capability. So again, as I'm repeating this for the second time, and I'll say it one more time, um, silicon photonics isn't really about silicon. It's about using CMOS processes and silicon wafers to make photonic integrated circuits. So we set about doing this, um, taking a wafer, SOI wafer. This is the waveguide that carries the light. This is the 3.5 material. Again, 3.5 is very efficient. We bond it to the silicon. Um, and this is a picture of the device. So here it looks kind of like this. That's the central waveguide. This is this uh, box layer, SiO2 layer. This is the 3.5. These are the quantum wells. And, uh, and it works. Here's seven lasers running CW on this. So the guy that made it work is sitting up here somewhere. At least he was up here. Um, Alex Fong. Where's Alex? There he went. You moved. <laughs> that was his PhD thesis. And uh, uh, that was the first thing. So. But to build real picks, to really solve the problem, you need much more than just a laser. Um, so you need other things, amplifiers, detectors, ring lasers, mode lock lasers, electro modulators, distributed feedback lasers. And this is one example. This is an optical buffer chip that Hyundai Park made. And now it's getting pretty complicated, right? There's lots of delay lines in here, lots of switch elements integrated into here. So now we're getting 30 or 40 devices integrated on a chip. And, uh, And that was what Hyundai did for his PhD thesis. Um, This is what D. Liang did for us, which is huge, which is he was the first one to start bonding 3.5 materials on silicon on a six-inch scale. And uh, that was huge um, in terms of making this really manufacturable. Companies like Intel and Orion went beyond that. They've gone to 200 millimeter wafers. um, And then other things have happened more recently than that. and the really exciting thing I'll talk about at the end got cut off here at the bottom, which is uh, Alan Liu has demonstrated the first quantum dot lasers, and, and really spectacular performance. So here's some, some examples. There's lots of groups involved. Some of them, like Amnon Uriev's group at Caltech, are actually getting phenomenally good results, better <coughs> than we do for DFBs. So I highlighted one of these just to show that there's always a lot of research that goes on. right? So this is three generations of devices. The first ones for modulators were about 20 gigahertz, which is adequate for today's communication devices. The next ones were about 42 gigahertz, so the next generation, 50 gigabit modulators is commonly going to be the standard. And then out here, 74 gigahertz, which you could use for 100 gigabit. That's not going to be needed for a while, but that's that was a whole progression of elements to get to get one of those data points. Here are some pictures of what those things look like. These are ring lasers, DBR lasers, DFB lasers, box center modulators, electroabsorption modulators, ring lasers, and then here's a Somewhat more integrated structure an array of amplifiers and array of detectors. So, just to give an example of what, what has been done. This has gotten a lot of attention. These are some magazine covers of different aspects of that work. Uh, so, where are we today? Um, this is what's been done in indium phosphide. This is that spectacular indium phosphide Infinera result I mentioned. Um, I think they're leading the world in that. Um, this is the work that Larry Calder and Dan Blumenthal did, uh, integrating uh, tunable lasers with an AWG. And we started a lot later in terms of doing things on silicon, but uh, at least at this point, the slope is higher. Uh, there's some interesting things that are faster. Um, this is a le- recent Orion result. This is a result that Jared Hume has and John Peters in, in FAB right now. So that may not be a valid data point if it doesn't work, but, um, <laughs> but that's, that's the goal. So I haven't seen Jared. Hopefully he's in processing. Ah, oh, you're here. Oh, wow. Well. So. Okay. So now what about... Commercial. What, what 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 can be done in terms of really changing changing the world? So this is Intel's first public demonstration. 50 gigabit link has four lasers on it, four modulators, and a wavelength combiner and a fiber. And uh, and again, it works works well. It's a nice 50 gigabit link. Well, recently they did an announcement at the Facebook Open Compute Summit. And so here's Justin Ratner, CTO of Intel, with uh, Andy Bechtelstein and, and uh, Frank uh, Frankowski of, of Facebook. And they announced that A, they're working together to a new class, and I'll show how you get now photonics inside the rack. And uh, the first architecture is disaggregation. So this is actually brilliant from an Intel point of view, right? So now you take storage and put it elsewhere, not on the same circuit board with your processor, because that way, when they come out with a much faster processor. You don't have to throw the whole thing away, which is expensive. You just replace the processor. And so disaggregating storage from, from processors makes a lot of sense. And at this announcement, they said, well, we now have not 50, but 100 gigabit modules. And we're sending those to, to key customers. So more recently, in September, they did a demo of, of this. And so now you can see, think back to those shelves of processors uh, in a data center. And uh, so now each of those shelves has multiple processors inside of here, which are easily be removable, upgradable to a, to a faster one in a few years, either using Xenon processors or Atom processors. And in the back here, this is this silicon photonic uh, source. So it's hybrid silicon based, 100 gigabit, coming off it as an optical fiber. That optical fiber goes out. And now that optical fiber goes down, comes from all of these different server trays, and goes back to some top of rack switch. And then it may be at this point electrically connected cost, We'd like that to be optically connected, but but not yet. So um, so that's the idea. That's Intel's vision. This is Hewlett-Packard's vision. Um, so this is where they kind of are today. This is where D. Liang is doing in particular, making very small, very low threshold ring lasers. That's key to get the power down uh, in these structures. And their goal is supercomputing. So you'd like to make lots of lasers and modulators and detectors on one die and interconnect all these processors. So all these processors are integrated in one die. They're all interconnected optically. That's the goal in something like 10 years from, from, from today. If you start looking at power numbers, we'll talk a little bit about this. You know, Today, we're kind of back here at optical transmission. Link is often 100 picajoules per bit. They need to get 1,000 times better than that over this 10-year period. And that's very much what our goal is as well. This is some work out of Orion. Um, so these are widely tunable lasers, like Julie did in town here a while back. It's now JDS. These are datacom lasers. So what's really significant about what they did was they took this philosophy of silicon wafers, and now they're combining telecom lasers with datacom lasers. No one's ever done that, processed them at the same time on one wafer. So these are 1.5 micron devices. These are 1.3. And yes, we can include modulators and detectors and things like that together. So that was, that was pretty significant. This is some work they're doing with IBM. So, now making very, very fast receivers. So, now 60 gigabit receivers using hybrid silicon uh, devices uh, integrated with the IBM structures. So, where are we going from here? That's how we've gotten where we are. The promise now is to, to get photonics into the rack. Um, we're doing some work now at interconnecting chips uh, with ultra-loss waveguides, some work with Dan Blumenthal's group. So, fibers that we've seen at very low loss, 0.2 dB per kilometer or per meter, you know, 0.002. Yeah. Optical waveguides are really much worse than that, 30 dB per kilometer. So our goal was, how do you get these sorts of losses on, on chips? And so this is the work that Jared Bowders uh, has written a bunch of papers about and uh, uses nitride waveguides, because nitride is, is, is a fairly low-loss material, and it's clad with silicon dioxide, just like optical fibers. If you make this nitride really thin, then all the energy is out here. And if the energy is out here, then the losses go down. So this is 100 nanometers thickness, 90, 50, 40 nanometers, and the loss has gone down by a factor of of 100. So now you can make a 100 times bigger structure for the same loss. That's, That's the goal. This is a particular type of device called RAID Waveguide Router. This is a way of combining these different colors of light together. And this is a very efficient device now because the loss is so low. This is one of the devices that really excites me. This is a resonator, and it's a very high Q resonator. And this is the work that Darrell Spencer is doing. And you can't read down in the corner here very well, but he's getting cues of 80 and 90 million on an integrated structure. So you can do a lot of things with this. And I'll show some examples. But fundamentally, you can make sensors. right? If you want to sense something, it's extremely accurate. Um, you can make very sensitive clocks that are very accurate because of this very high Q resonator. And so that's, that's his effort. We're doing work with Luke Theogarajan at combining CMOS together with photon ICs. So this is a wafer of of optical switches. And our goal now is to use electronics to make up for the fact that they're not perfect. So in terms of how you bias these switches and how you adjust gains and elements, we're using detectors throughout this wafer array to feedback and control the SOAs and control the MOX intermodulators. The idea is, and this is what uh, Louis Chen did for his PhD thesis, Louis is one of Luke's students, is to take your photonic wafer and now take this advanced CMOS die and drop it inside. So these are all these different CMOS die dropped inside. Here's an example. This is this optical switch array. And here's the CMOS driver and control electronics. All the smarts are here. And you drop it in. You planarize it with SiO2. You CMP it down. You open up holes, metallize across. And in the end, this looks like a wafer. But now you've got very advanced 32 nanometer or better CMOS with photonic structures. And uh, that's one way to do it. Um, and that's what we've been doing with Fluke. So the reason we want to get optics onto the processor chip, onto the memory chip, onto the electronic switching chip, is here. As you go through different generation of electronics, and so here's kind of where the world is today, um, if you start making big electrical switches, They take lots of watts. This is just the power to get the signals off that chip, not all the processing going on the chip. Hundreds or maybe 200 watts. Um, If you can do it optically rather than electrically, the calculation is it's something like 9 watts. So that's a huge improvement. That allows us to scale to much bigger processors, much bigger arrays of of cores on the wafer. And that's the goal. The other big advantage is here. This is, again, a plot versus year, so we're today here at 2013. How many pins do you need if each pin carries 10 gigabits per second? You need 5,000 pins. That's a lot. That's kind of the fundamental limit of what what one can do. If you go forward just six years later, you need 20,000 pins. That's not possible. So you need to go to optics. And that's what's on the right-hand side here. If you've got 10 wavelengths, you can do it with just a few fibers. And and that's the the power of having optics on the chip itself. And that's where I think we'll be by the year 2020. This is, again, an IBM cartoon, but I think it's where the world is going. This is a wafer of processors, bonded, 3D bonded to a wafer of memory and probably multiple wafers of memory, all talking to each other vertically. And then on top is an optical wafer. And uh, this is, again, bonded to it, so it's all one big wafer. You dice it up when you're done. And all these different cores on this wafer are all talking to each other optically. So you need lasers on chip, detectors, modulators, amplifiers. And that's what we've been talking about all day today. So that's kind of the vision for the future. What that means for computer architects is shown here. So this is sort of all the, it's a little out of date, but all the best supercomputers that are made. And they're all sort of along this line of of one gigaflop per watt, or, or slightly worse than that. So this is more and more throughput. This is petaflops, 10 petaflops. And this is, takes more and more power to do it. So it's sort of an inverse scale. This is 10 megawatts of power to achieve a few petawatts of, of, of computation. That, that's a lot of power, right? That's what we want to save. Um, the electrical link that you're limited to is probably around here at around 10 gigaflops per, per watt. And what one can achieve optically, if those were optically interconnected, is a much higher level, much higher level performance, more like 100 gigaflops per watt. So that's the goal, is is to get from a curve down here, a factor of 100 better up here. So for the same power, 100 times more computing capability. So that's, again, what we're trying to achieve. So for that to happen, we're not there by any means. So again, this is this metric back here of how much energy does it take to get, say, a signal off chip for this curve or on chip between devices. We need to do better than just a wire today, um, and and that's kind of you know this this is uh, this is Dave Miller's plot. He may be like Charles Kow. He Set the this is the bar. This is what the optics field has to achieve. Um, so modulators are probably there. Optical switches, uh, EAMs, box um, senders, not not too bad. Lasers are kind of up here. So a few picajoules per bit, that's okay. We need to get down here. So we need 10 times lower threshold. Um, 10 times higher, well, a total of, of a factor of 10 or more. So this is the work that Di Liang is very much doing. Um, Chong Zhang has some really nice new results, uh, very high efficiency devices. And Alan Liu has some very spectacular results. So uh, I'm still in a bit of his thunder. He's going to give this paper next week um, uh, at the NAMBI conference. But uh, he's been growing these quantum dot structures and uh, on silicon. and. And getting very good results. High temperature operation, 115 degrees C. That's important. If you're going to put this on a processor, right? it's going to run hot. Very high power, 60 milliwatts of power at room temperature. So very, very nice results. It shows the power of being at UCSB and the power of the materials group here. Art's been doing quantum dots like this for at least 15 years. And it's probably the world's expert at it. And this whole capability existed here. For Alan to get to this point, I believe he's grown about 100 wafers of material and processed them here in the cleanroom. So again, thanks to the cleanroom folks. Um, if we had just done the growth outside externally, literally I would be bankrupt. I mean, it would be more than probably a million dollars is what that would have cost to do it. Um, so it's, it's really the power of having the capability to just run here and, and churn through lots and lots of wafers very quickly. So I'm almost done. Um, if you look at oscillators, the quietest, most stable oscillators in the world are now optical. They didn't used to be, but they are now. And they exist at NIST. And they typically consist of very stable oscillators. These are you know, some little spring system here, so you get vibration out, out of the optical oscillator. Um, you have these femtosecond combs and very high Q resonators, even higher than Daryl's gotten. Um, that's the basis of making a very quiet oscillator. Our goal is to integrate it on a chip. So we want to use silicon photonics to integrate it together. That's the work that Suda's doing and Mike Davenport's doing. And so they have structures like this. Um, and we want to combine those again with these high-key resonators and uh, make a very quiet oscillator. So here's a packaged ring oscillator, what, what it looks like uh, that I showed this is silicon nitride technology. And you probably can't see this, but this is one of these integrated lasers. There's two of them here. Um, so a couple different rings here in this cavity. So we're a long way from where NIST is. Um, but this group has improved the performance by literally 40 dB over the last year. So unfortunately, they've got another 40 dB to go. And it's harder than the first 40. So um, other things. This is very different now. You know, What is the future of silicon photonics? It needs to be typically things that are high volume. You know, Sensing uh, sugar levels in blood would be a good example. Um, uh, Luke Theogarajan and and Karl Meinhart Moskowitz have been looking at different sorts of spectroscopy, the absorption, fluorescent, Raman. And these are things we can build on a chip at fairly low cost. A real simple way to do it is just with a tunable laser, which is what Jared's doing with a probe and a detector, makes a very nice uh, spectroscopic sensor. Um, This is some work we did with Karl and and Martin, um, where we're looking at integrating this hybrid silicon technology, lasers, and detector arrays, and, and wavelength selectors, together with the work that, that Carl does in, in uh, microfluidics, and putting it all together to make, to make uh, uh, sensors. This is some work we're doing with Ghent University, um, Roel Bates Group, and uh, Andreas De Groot has been working on this part. You need a very wide band source for optical coherence tomography. And he's getting some very spectacular results. He's getting sleds that operate from 1.2 to 1.6 microns. So hopefully, it'll make for a very nice uh, integrated. Right now, it's not, no one's demonstrated integrated. Our goal is to put this all in one single chip. So I uh, went through a lot of stuff. Uh, obviously, in spite of the introduction, I didn't do almost any of it. Um, <laughs> primarily, these older students got it all started, Alex and these have all graduated and are often in, in industry and universities now. And I do want to thank all the colleagues here. This is a tremendous group to work in. It's, it's just phenomenal. Thank you all.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.